ladies. Good evening, Caroline. And welcome to another episode of The Wife Who, the podcast where we talk about women that we think are interesting and worth knowing about. And it's a bit of a learning journey for us as well, isn't it, Lou? Definitely a learning journey. Absolutely. And this week, we've changed up the format slightly so that... Whereas, I mean, especially me, I like to talk for like an hour about the ins and outs of one woman's life of drama. Um, But this time we've decided to look at the women who actually, we don't have necessarily as much information about their lives. You know, we don't know the ins and outs of their childhood and all of the their innermost thoughts. Um, they might have been a long time ago or maybe they're just on the records, but we still think that they're worth bringing into light. We do. You know, we want to dedicate some podcast episodes to these women who maybe just had one little interesting story or anecdote that was recorded. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, on that note, we should just get into it because it's kind of a trial for us as well, isn't it? So each of us is going to do like a, a slightly shorter one than normal and we'll make it like a uh, an episode of two halves. And did you call it a mini-sode? I quite like that. Yeah, let's call it a mini-sode. I did say that. But actually, I think it'll probably yeah. end up being the same length as a normal one, but just split into two halves. So <laughs> let's just see how it goes. It's a trial, guys. And actually, we would love to hear from you, if anyone's listening out there, um, to, to let us know whether you like this format and whether you think we should do more like this one or whether you prefer the other ones where it's just more detail about one woman i think there's definitely a place for both though and just before we get into it a reminder that as usual you can contact us through our email address the wife who um podcast at the <laughs> nearly forgot our email address um and of course we're on facebook and instagram and um We've been getting a little bit more attention recently. We've got more people joining our Facebook page. And if you're interested and you'd like to um, have a bit of discussion around women's lives or you'd like to ask us any questions, please do join our Facebook group as well. We would love to have more members in there. We, we would love to engage with you guys. So, yeah, get in touch. Let us know what you think. And without further ado, shall we get into it, Lou? Yeah, let's go. Great. So you want to go first? I'll start. Great. So this episode, uh, this is where I'm going to be telling you about the wife who carried a bow and arrows and had a wife. The wife who had a wife. (laughs) I love that. Okay. This is really interesting already. (laughs) So, and I apologize right from the outset. I always seem to pick people who I know I am not going to be able to pronounce their name authentically. (laughs) Mm. So I think... Uh, the pronunciation will go somewhere along the lines of Kaushima Nupika. Let's just go with, with Kaushima. Kaushima. Kaushima for now. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was hunting around trying to find a recorded history of a badass woman, a female warrior of North American Indias, Indian descent. I mean, blatantly, we know that there will have been oodles of mm. these women. Mm. But I'm guessing it wasn't really top of the agenda for white men or the people who recorded history back then to tell the stories of these particular women, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Pocahontas, who even knows, you know, how much of that story is factual. But there's so there's not a lot of these uh, recorded stories out there as I wish they were. And we all wish they were. But but they are out there. There are some. And there was this one particular individual that really caught my eye. I would say 
this is a really vibrant person. And I'll say individual because I think there was a little bit of gender fluidity going on with this particular wife. You know, she had a few names. Kaushima Nupika is uh, gone to the spirits, I guess is an English okay. translation. Also known as uh, Kankon Kamek Kloala, which I think means sitting in the water grizzly. Okay. And the much more easy to pronounce, man-like woman. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, that it does what it says on the tin, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. And I'm just going to start by discussing the two sources I used to try and create this profile. One, naturally, was Wikibloodypedia. Of course, of course. It's our Bible, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not proud of that. Um, but second, uh, the other site I used, and I much prefer the name of this site, is Women's History Matters. Okay, great. So they differ on the dates of things. And actually, the second site focuses less on what seems to be a quotation marks, important man's account of her. And mm. instead, this, this site just tells an account of her. Whereas the Wikipedia site's always like, oh, this man um, said this man saw her do this, or That's this man interesting. said that do you, she did that. Do you think that needs changing then? I mean, because you know, we can we people can volunteer to change Wikipedia articles. It's volunteer based. Is this one that you think maybe should be amended? I d it just felt very much like uh, she is being validated, or her history, her existence, and what she did. Uh, people feel like. It being told through the, the, the facts of a man is recording it as though it makes it more factual. Mm. I mean, if they're Which, the ones that wrote it down, though, I guess you have to take the man's, like, if that's the, all we have. I mean, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use both sites to try and tell the story. Mm. So, um, and I'll let you know maybe when I'm, when I'm using both as well. So in her lifetime, as I've said, she had these, these different names. And uh, the very first name I told you was the woman who carried a bow and arrows and had a wife. She was from an indigenous tribe called the Kootenai. And this is what I've managed to gather. So she's first recorded in history. At this point, really, with no name attached to her. Basically, she's just recorded as second wife, effectively slave wife. Mm. Around 1808, she's married to this French dude called uh, Boisvert, who worked for a famous fur trader and cartographer called David Thompson. So David Thompson is the guy that records history. And it is this high and mighty British man who documents her first in his Columbia River journals and not in a flattering light. Oh dear. So apparently he wrote... And I'll try and, I'll try and put on a stuffy uh, British <laughs> accent. <laughs> Love that. Yes, please. Let's go. She became so common that I had to send her to her relations. As all the Indian men are married, a courtesan is neglected by the men and hated by the woman. Ooh. So I think it suggested that she was exiled from this company of workers for being too rowdy and maybe promiscuous, perhaps getting it on with other workers or she's just being quite rowdy. Right. It's wow. not clear. Okay, then. And sometimes the other sites you read suggest that, oh, she was just far too, you know. The, it obviously just wasn't proper for a woman, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of behaviour. Oh, dear. 
So yeah, David Thompson exiled her, got rid of her. So she goes back to her Kootenai clan. And this is where it gets interesting. She says that the experience with the white men has turned her into a man. So she starts dressing as a man, carrying weapons, and she takes a succession of wives. Wow. Okay. I know. Totally changes her, you know, her character. Or, do, you, do you think you this know. is a sort of like a, a power thing or do you think it's just an excuse because she always wanted to do that before? But I don't know. Maybe. Maybe she thought her experience of living with the white people somehow gave her the... The freedom to, yeah. The freedom, the confidence to... Okay. To go back to a tribe and mm. be someone else. So with her various wives, because I think she had more than one wife, <laughs> she goes off traveling throughout the Pacific Northwest and she does a range of things. She serves as a courier and guide to fur trappers and traders. And more interestingly, she travels from tribe to tribe and acts as a prophetess, oh. essentially predicting epidemics, so the arrival of deadly diseases among the tribes of the area. I wonder if she's actually the one, imagine if she's like Typhoid Mary and she's the one carrying it from tribe to tribe. Passing. She's like, oh, you're going to get, and it's like, well, yeah, because you're taking it from that last place you were at. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> she uh, predicts the invasion by Europeans and she uh, predicts the destruction of tribal villages by a great force that would bury them under the ground. At some point, that David Thompson dude, that stuffy British man, he bumps it into her again and he records the following. Thompson encountered her next on Rainy Lake near the upper Columbia River in July 1809, where he says she had set herself up for a prophetess and gradually had gained, by her shrewdness, some influence among the natives as a dreamer and expounder of dreams. She recollected me before I did her and gave a haughty look of defiance, as much to say, I am now out of your power. Oh. Now, this is a Wikipedia citation needed quote with the emphasis on David Thompson again. So I feel like David Thompson is quite central to the telling of um, yeah. Kaushima. Yeah. Anyway, she's presented as being a pretty fearless warrior by the Women's History Matters site. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> In 1811, she promised to deliver a letter from uh, Spokane House to Fort... Let me see if I can pronounce this. Fort Escater Tadine. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I've butchered that. Oh, it's a good effort, though. <laughs> I'm just going to say Fort Esther. Sure, leave it there. like that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the Fraser River, and for reasons unknown, she and her wife went hundreds of miles out of their way, ending up at Port Astoria, Oregon, where she drew an accurate map of the inland territory between the coast range and the Rocky Mountains for David Stewart, Thompson's rival. So I think what was so impressive about this journey that she did, where she ended up in Oregon, um, it was impressive because her journey took her through a tract of country which had not at the time been passed through by the traders. What, so, wait, what date are we talking about at this point, roughly? Well, that was about 1811. Interesting. Really interesting, because I'm going to be telling you about a woman who ends up in Oregon before that. Just not long before that, just a few years before that. So, really interesting. I can't wait to mm. uh, share that with you. 
Okay, so I wonder if, and this might not be accurate. This eighteen eleven, mm. the dates seem to be a little bit kind of. Was it eighteen o three here? Was it eighteen eleven here? You know, so mm. so yeah, this this area is considered to be populated by hostile tribes, and she has done something that none of the traders have been able to do yet. She's said to have spoken four of the indigenous languages and also French. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was for being married to the uh, French dude. Yeah. And she runs into the high and mighty David Thompson again for the third time, I guess, when apparently she walks into his camp seeking asylum. So at this point in his journals, she is referred to as man-like woman and is described by him as apparently a young man, well-dressed in leather, carrying a bow and quiver of arrows with his wife, a young woman in good clothing. So apparently she is seeking asylum because she's in trouble with her adopted tribe, the Chinooks, for predicting diseases. And it's the classic case, I think, of shoot the messenger, unless she is Typhoid Mary and she's been killing people off. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I think nobody likes the message that she's been delivering. Yeah, because she's all, all like f- this like apocalyptic doom, like everything. Exactly. Uh, yeah, okay. But, yeah, but no again- one likes this future that she can see. But this is still all according to him, though, isn't it? At this point. That definitely is according to him. But I think mm-hmm. a few people agree that she was seen as a prophetess. Okay, yeah. She, so Kaushima acquired the name Kankon Kamek Klaula, which is the sitting in the water grizzly name, after crouching while crossing a stream so others would not discern his sex, meaning her sex. Um, how does the crouching in the stream help? <laughs> so I think this is in reference to when river crossings were made, I think they would strip their clothes oh. so they wouldn't get them wet. Okay, yeah, fine. So she wanted to hide from people the fact that she was a woman. Yeah, okay. Presenting herself as a man. Grizzly. Sitting in the water, grizzly. grizzly. <laughs> yeah, and maybe grizzly because uh, there was one, there like was one crazy site I read. Yeah, one, one site I read... This this person went off on. It was like they were kind of creating their own story out of her. But it was like, well, her brother suspected that she wasn't a man, but her brother must have known she was born a woman. Well, yeah. And her brother <laughs> was shouting things at her, or and so she was grisly, as though you know, trying to get him away from her, or mm, this okay. kind of thing. All right, grumpy and grouchy, I think. Okay. So really, there's not a lot else um, to, to discover. Well, I'm sure there was a lot to discover. We just can't access this. But I'll read you the passage from Women's History Matters, which spells out the final passage of her life. Kaushima Nupika took up arms for the Salish, who knew her as Inges Onten, but also worked as an intermediary between tribes, as she spoke at least four indigenous languages. In a battle with the Blackfeet, she was stabbed several times in the chest, but, witnesses claimed, the wounds closed up almost immediately, leading her enemies to believe she had supernatural protection. In 1837, Kaushima Nupika saved a Salish band by tricking the Blackfeet, who greatly outnumbered their Salish enemies. The Blackfeet then ambushed Kaushima Nupika and, fearing she would not die otherwise, cut out her heart and chopped it into pieces. And that same year, a smallpox epidemic decimated tribes across the Northwest. Just like she predicted. Just as she had foreseen. (laughs) 
so you know who knows how much of this is true but i just thought what a great story yeah i mean what strikes me about it more than anything is that there's really nothing positive about her in there like there's no redeeming like but she was really kind to her wife or she was a really good like huntsman or like there's really nothing it's just she was this really grisly man-like woman who was gruff and 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 defiant to this and, uh, yeah. and kind of nasty actually i think to this white guy which i mean fair play you know i'm not complaining about <laughs> that um but there's not really any redeeming factor about her i think she's the first kind of heel that we've really done on this show don't you think <laughs> yeah you know yeah. i kind of liked her her sass and her spunk and oh, her yeah. attitude and it felt like she just she didn't give a you know what about what anyone thought of her yeah quite right that's how it feels and that she was brave and, um, you know, she's yeah. clearly a warrior. I mean, she is. And, and I get, you know, I'm a fan of all those things, but it kind of sounds like even her own tribes didn't really like her, which is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that says um, <laughs> Maybe scared of her or maybe. You know, these, these messages that she was delivering to everyone. Nobody wanted to hear it, did they? But I wonder to what extent that is actually just, like you said, a white man's retelling of just a native who was naturally in opposition to him. And of course mm-hmm. she would be. I mean, what natives weren't in opposition to the white man at this point, right? Um, especially if she's been married off to some French Canadian, was it, did you say? Yeah, exactly. And was almost a slave wife. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so she had a lot of reasons to be defiant. And especially if she was, in fact, you know, a staunch lesbian, which it sounds like she was, and she's been married off to some guy against her will. Um, and then she grows up a bit and comes home and is allowed to be herself, finally. But she's going to be bitter, right? Yeah, and how much of this story is other people telling her story? She's not exactly taking charge of her own narrative here, is she? No. So I bet there's a lot of men that did not like the way that this woman who was almost presenting herself as masculine mm-hmm. and was as brave maybe more brave than a lot of men. I bet Mm. no one particularly liked this. Well, really interesting. And tell us again, just to finish off her name. So uh, even though I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, (laughs) uh, Kaushima Nupika. Kaushima Nupika. Yep. Okay, I'm going to try and remember her because she is badass. Awesome. Thank you for sharing her story. And um, I wonder, you know, I bet actually there were loads more stories about her that were passed down in the oral tradition through the various tribes that she visited. I bet there were, and I bet they just haven't survived, haven't been documented. She is a ledge, which is a great British way of (laughs) saying she's a legend. What a ledge. What a ledge. You know, it's so interesting because, um, so you told me obviously that you were going to be doing a Native American woman. Um, and so in the spirit of this sort of joint episode that we decided to trial, I decided that I would also do a Native American woman. And um, there are so many parallels. I mean, uh, well, there are a few parallels. Um, and it's weird because they genuinely did seem to be operating in the same area during the same period. And and the woman I'm going to tell you about also had links to these white men. So are you ready mm. to get into my story now? Yeah, I can't wait. Awesome. Okay, so I'm actually going to be telling you the story of a Native American woman who is 
it seems to me the second most famous Native American woman ever after Pocahontas, I think. Like, if the only thing stopping her from being the most famous one is the fact that Disney made a film about Pocahontas. Yeah. Um, so her name is Sacagawea. Have you heard of her? I think I came across her when I was obviously trying to research this woman. Right. And it, there was this agreement that there's Pocahontas and then there's this woman. Yeah, Sacagawea. Right? Yeah, exactly. And she, yeah. and she is... She's super famous in America, um, although seemingly her actual true story isn't necessarily appreciated by most people. So she's known as this sort of figure rather than actually for the truth of the life that she led. So I thought it would be quite cool to do a little bit about her. So mm-hmm. she's born in 1788. So like Pocahontas was like 150 years before this, to be fair. Um, so you know not not that close to Pocahontas um really not that comparable apart from this is the time of exploration and she is super famous in America for having been part of the Lewis and Clark expedition which is known as the core or corpse is how it's spelled of discovery to explore the American West and seemingly if you're American this is part of your standard like you know history lesson right she basically so she is um she was a 17 year old native american princess essentially she was the daughter of a chief who took a baby with her on a journey with a party of white men on this really difficult arduous journey of exploration from one side of the country to the other which took about two years on an exploration mission to discover the Louisiana Territory. So it's quite, this is quite a famous story. And she's seen as um, brave and resourceful and seemingly really importantly, a willing aid to help these American white men. And she's become this sort of icon of, you know, sort of agreement across white people and Native Americans. And, you know, she's the symbol of, um, feminist power almost and and she's direct she's showing these white men the way and they're having to bow to her knowledge so wow. yeah Wait, did she take her own baby yeah was it her baby yeah so who was where's the dad right. did he just let her go well, off and that's just the pricey so i'm going to tell you the whole story but that is basically the synopsis of what everyone knows her for and there's this like quite famous image of her and these two famous white explorers and she's pointing off into the distance going that is the way west you know and there's these two guys so uh-huh. but these two guys it's like they just look like american like fur trappers or like uh davy crockett like you wouldn't know that they were anyone but when you put this woman this native american woman pointing next to them and usually she has this baby strapped to her back everyone goes oh that's lewis and clark with you know uh, sacagawea like everyone knows that's what that is so i'm going to tell you her actual story so she was born in idaho in 1788 a lemhi shoshone woman and again, apologies mm-hmm. if we're not getting the, the pronunciation right, but I did look up how to pronounce it, and I think it's Shoshone. Um, and she was the daughter of the chief. Fine. But when she's 12, just 12, there's a battle with another tribe, and several of the tribe are killed, and she, with a few other women, are kidnapped by this enemy tribe, the Hidatsa tribe. And she is taken far away um, to... North Dakota. And for a time, she lives with a family there and she learns their language. Right. Okay. So not the best 
start in life. And I think you're going to like this, actually. These Hidatsa, Hidatsa Mandan tribes, they're referred to as, they were matriarchal. So they have mm. women heading up the clans and the women own and inherit their own, the homes and the land, the like gardens around the homes. So they're in charge. So this is kind of interesting. I like that. Yeah. I love ma- matriarchs. Yeah, yeah, right? What woman doesn't? <laughs> we like to be boss. Um, <laughs> so we know that Sacagawea impressed these women there with her hard work because she earned this blue beaded belt. So you can picture it, it's like a three fingers wide beaded belt with like a bit hanging off down the front. You can picture the sort of thing that they would make, you know, like um, Native American crafts style. Yeah. And this was a symbol awarded to hardworking, you know, uh, young people so they approve of her but then at some point between the ages of it's not quite clear 13 to 15 she gets sold to a french canadian fur trapper <laughs> um oh there's a pattern forming here yeah isn't there <laughs> uh, and his name is toussaint charbonneau to become his second uh tribal wife so he has his european wife at home no no he's already he's bought another slave from the same clan who's his first wife, and now he's got Whoa. a second slave wife. Um, he's a greedy MF. Yeah, although it seems like it was kind of common. Anyway, he's 48, and she, she's like 15. Um, That's so wrong. Yeah, possibly even younger, actually. But anyway, oh. she, when she's kind of 16, she is soon pregnant. And this is the time that these two explorer guys turn up and they are called Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. And they've been commissioned by the president at the time, John, uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, to explore the lands west of the Mississippi, uh, which is currently still uncharted. And I think this includes Oregon, actually, which you were talking about earlier. And the reason that Thomas Jefferson is particularly interested in this is because he has just bought the land not from the Native Americans, but from France, who apparently own this. And it's eight, right, of course. Yeah, right? And it's 800,000 square miles that he's just bought from France. So, of course, he's like, oh, well, let's send some people over there and learn if it's of any value. And this, this purchase of this land is known as the Louisiana Purchase. And again, this is part of commonly known American history. Mm-hmm. So he asked these guys to go and find out about it, like plants, animals, and the native peoples there. And it reminded me a bit of our Jean Barre expedition where she goes to like learn about the botany on this exploration journey. And it's going to take a couple of years to complete as well, very like the Jean Barre expedition. So we're talking about 8,000 miles of journey by boat, on foot, and uh, on horseback. And they're going to need some help, basically. So... They advertise, we need a guide. And Sacagawea's husband volunteers and says, look, I've got this native girl here and she can speak the Shoshone tribal language that you're going to need if you're going to go over that side of the country. Mm -hmm. So they're like, yeah, okay, you're hired and drag your wife along. And she has this baby and within like six weeks or something, she's on the road. So, you know, they're not hanging about. Six weeks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So she straps this baby. It's a baby boy. And she straps it on her back. And off they go. (laughs) Right? Now, none of these white men seem to give a stuff that she's like 16 and just had a baby. And with child, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They're just like, right, let's let's get going. Um, Let's crack on. Yeah. And her job is to intervene and translate 
with the locals. So if there's any sort of possible conflict, she needs to get in there, talk to the local people uh, and negotiate passing through their lands and also to find them roots and plants and berries and stuff that they can eat because, of course, they are useless white men who don't know how to do any of this stuff. <sighs> yeah. And they need a woman yeah. to show them how, how things work. Yeah, because, of course, the Native Americans, they know the land. They know this land inside out and they know what's safe and what's not. Whereas these ignorant white men turn up and they're like, oh, what's that? I don't know what this is, you know. So yep. she's really valuable um, to them. So one day they're in a boat and the boat capsizes and the, the white men are just like, oh, this is really dreadful what are we going to do and they're all just having a little uh, fluttering panic attack and she dives into the water and retrieves all of their important stuff including important papers that would have been lost uh, including the journals of these guys lewis and clark and without those we really wouldn't know anything about the expedition that they did today i think she rescues her own story yeah she kind of did um along with all of their stuff yeah and so they named the river in her honor and it is i think wow. still now called the sacagawea river i think another time she has they come across this tribal chief who has this beautiful sea otter fur coat and they've never seen anything so beautiful in their lives and the white men decide that they want to buy it because they think thomas jefferson would like it but the tribal chief doesn't want any of their stuff he wants sacagawea's blue beaded belt that she earned and okay she has to give it up to this guy so that they can have this fur coat. Now, I would love to know. I mean, did she do this willingly or did they make her? Or was she forced? Yeah, I'd, I would love to know. And uh, There is a bit of debate about how happy she was about this fact. But seemingly the next day, the white men did give her a coat of blue cloth in recompense. And who knows? She might have been cool with that. But I thought that was a bit rough. You know, she earned that, that belt. Well, I think it's rough that she had to go off marching with a baby strapped well, on her back. yeah, right. <laughs> six weeks after giving birth. Yeah. This whole story has been pretty rough. And she was married off to a guy when she was still yes. early teens. Yeah, but all the, um, all the reference to her character seems to suggest that she's very mature. She's quiet. She takes things in her stride. And she approaches difficulties with a calmness and a maturity oh, this beyond is how men, her years. This is how men want women to be remembered, though, isn't it? Or it's, it's how women are agreeable if yeah. they are calm yeah. if they are uh, willing it, you know it's like the opposite of um Kalshmer, who have just yes grizzly and it is grumpy yeah and they praised her for Every, this everything about this story so far is like oh wasn't she she was great wasn't she because she did what we asked her to do and yeah. she was calm obedient she wasn't raggy she was obedient she did exactly what we needed. Yeah. But, I mean, she may have been afraid for her life. I mean, you know, she's had a rough time and she's just doing what she needs to survive. And I respect that, you know. Oh, totally. She's bearing I mean, these sufferings with very little complaint. She must have been very strong. And we don't know about her character. We only know how they're, they're yes. talking about her and how they're choosing to present her, right? Yeah, because this so... is all from this guy. I think it's Mary. I think it's Clark's actually journal. One of the two guys. Anyway, it's his journal that we know all of this from, really. Just like you said in your story, you know. Um, yeah. So one day, anyway, they've gone all this way, and one day they happen across a tribe, and Sacagawea suddenly gets super emotional and starts jumping up and down, and it turns out that 
this is her own tribe that they've come back to, who she hasn't seen them oh, since wow. she was 12. And it turns out that the chief now, so her, her father presumably has died because the chief is her own brother who she hasn't seen in years. And so there's this whole beautiful emotional reunion. Reunion. Yeah, because she's got oh. a baby with her as well. So they meet yeah. the baby and it's like, oh, so touching. Um, but interestingly... She doesn't stay there. And actually, the reports that I read seem to suggest that had she wanted to, she probably she could, could have, have found a way to stay. Huh. So wow. did she carry on because she felt duty bound to keep her commitments? Or was it because she was actually happy now in her new life? Or was it because she didn't feel, I, I don't know. I'm. Did it give her a sense of adventure and purpose that she was doing this thing which... Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I mean, made her feel useful. She's married to this French-Canadian guy, remember, so presumably by law she couldn't leave, but she would have found a way if she... I don't know. It's an interesting question, though, isn't it? Like, what her motive was it is. at this point. So at other times, anyway, they have to carry on through the winter and it's like unbearably cold, there's deep snow and they're like starving. But Sacagawea ferrets around through the snow and she finds these edible roots and she basically keeps these men alive. They would have died if it wasn't for her. Mm. So the expedition eventually makes it to the present day Oregon coast in 1805. Um, And I think she's like 18 at this point, something like that. And they build a fort and they wait out the winter um, there. And so she's got this baby with her. And one of the the white guys, uh, Lewis Clark, has become actually like really genuinely fond of this little one-year-old kid that has, of course, he's seen him grow up. I mean, you can see that, can't you? You can see that he'd be touched yeah. um, by mm-hmm. this baby's growth. And he nicknames the baby Pomp or Little Pomp. And while they're at this fort, um, they explore along the Yellowstone River and Clark uh, names a rock formation after this little baby and he calls it Pompey's Tower. I thought it was kind of cute. That's cute. Yeah, it's quite good. So at the end of all this, you know, that it's after two years, they make it all the way back. I think they end up in St. Louis is where they finish. And at the end of this, Lewis gets named governor of the Louisiana Territory that they've pretty much you know, put on the map and chart, and he gets mm-hmm. 1,600 acres of it, of course. Um, now, if it, if it makes you feel any better, I read that he had a drinking problem, which um, led to him neglecting his duties as a governor, um, which, I don't know, he was just such, so privileged, just got thrown all this massive amount of land, you know, he's in favour with Thomas Jefferson. None of this land was his, but because he went and looked at it, he got given a tonne of it. So I, you know, it's a classic story though, isn't it? Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Privilege. Yeah. Uh, the other guy gets land to this Clark guy, because he's so fond of Sacagawea's baby, he asks if he can adopt him. So interesting because Sacagawea and this guy obviously want their son to have the best opportunities. They want him to be educated. So they accept the offer, but they move to where he is and they all kind of live in the same town. But this Clark guy adopts the son and brings him up. That is so sad. Yeah. She watches her son being brought up by a rich white man. Yeah. Like, do you think she had any say in this or do you think the dad was like, oh, if you pay me money, you can have it? I mean, I don't know. Oh, I hate to think of that. But I get the impression this Clark guy was kind of it was a nice guy actually you know and actually it turns out 
that Sacagawea, very shortly after they return, within, I think, two or three years, she has another child. She has a little girl. And she soon dies, unfortunately. Sacagawea? Yeah. She only lives to about uh, 24, I think she is. Gosh. Yeah. So she really has a very short, like, yeah, 24. So she dies in 1812. And she's 24 years old and she's still Uh remembered for going on this journey. So she's the first uh, Native American woman to traverse the width of America to go to the far coast and back again. So that in itself was an achievement. But I mean, of course, you know, she's remembered for this as this like feminist icon of I will show you that. But in reality, she was kind of just dragged along, I think. Yeah, with her baby. Yeah, which... You know, that was a tall order. And and she was brave and stoic in the face of it. I think she was a strong, mature 24-year-old when she died. You know, she'd lived through a lot. Yeah. Just as a sort of an aside, um, they weren't the only ones on this trip. Uh, they had a black slave um, who was a slave to Clark, whose name was York. And he was left to this Clark guy in his father's will. Right. I mean, it's just so hard for us nowadays, isn't it, to kind of to picture this, you know, people as property. The fact that you could leave somebody to somebody else in your will. I know. It's hard for us to take that in nowadays. But York is remembered. He So he, of course, was the first African-American to have crossed North America, you know, same as she was the first um, Native American, uh, certainly Native American woman. Um, so he was the first black man, black African American to cross North America to reach the Pacific. And there's actually a great statue of this guy, York, um, on his Wikipedia page. It's somewhere in Kentucky. I can't remember where off the top of my head, but it's actually quite a cool statue. He's like a big kind of burly, strong man. And it shows him, he just looks really noble in this statue. So he's remembered too. Anyway, as to Sacagawea, the National American Women Suffrage Association in the early 20th century adopted her as a symbol of women's worth and independence, and they erected several statues and plaques to her and spread the story of her accomplishments. But as I say, I, I wonder if the the way that she's sort of venerated is actually a little misplaced to an extent because of yeah. how little choice she had in this, I think. Mm. So yeah, that is the... The, the true story of Sacagawea, as far as I could divine it, um, and she is really, really famous, but a highly romanticised figure, I think, really. Yeah, and I bet her story has evolved a bit over the centuries uh, to fit with, like, modern audiences. You know how... Yeah, I think so. I think Pocahontas has been romanticised uh, to fit with modern audiences. Yeah, but certainly there's been fictional literature about her that's you know definitely romanticised. Um, and But there's been a number of films over the last sort of 20 years that have pictured her. I haven't watched any of them. Um, so perhaps actually the true story of her life has come out uh, in recent, more recent years. Who knows? Mm. Well, I really enjoyed learning about our two Native American women was... Yeah, I think we did a bit of compare-contrast yeah. uh, in those two stories. Yeah, we did. I mean, I, what's interesting for me about Sacagawea is that she's so famous in America, but I didn't really know about her. Um, and I feel like in the UK, 
We don't really know the name Sacagawea, do we? No, we're just not really taught that no. um, that part of history, are we? In our fairly limited history GCSE. Yeah, that's right. Whereas I feel like your woman, she's like pretty niche. You know that I I wonder how well known in America she actually is. Um, yeah, I think she is pretty niche. Yeah. So great find. You do like a good warrior woman, don't you? Oh, I yeah. I just love yeah. WW warrior women. We should have called this warriorwomen.com. Actually, that probably exists yeah, already. Yeah, blatantly. Somebody look it up. Uh, all right. Well, I guess that concludes another episode of the Wife Who. Thanks, Louise. I really enjoyed this one. Thanks, darling. Yeah, everyone listening, let us know what you think. Whether you like this format or whether you prefer us to hone in on one woman i think we'll probably do a combination of the two don't you yeah i think we're gonna have to in order to tell lots of people's stories especially people who maybe don't have reams written about them but just have a great you know few anecdotes about them. yeah but yeah i look forward to doing more of this sort of thing so thank you so much and shall we say good night yeah we'll say good night and we'll meet again soon (laughs) do a fake clink (laughs) Cheers, darling. Good night. Good night, darling.